So this evening I'd like to talk about taking the practice home. Since, in case you didn't know, tomorrow (laughs) the retreat ends (laughs) and you have to go home. Or somewhere. (laughs) So, um, first I want to just thank you for your practice. It's been, we've commented many times on the retreat the teachers, how delightful it has been to be here with you, and uh, especially the stillness in the hall. Many of you have spoken to it. The, just that there's a certain sweetness in this retreat, and the sincerity, and the dedication. And uh, I know for many of you, this is a new practice, a new form. And um, it's been really delightful to be, at least from this end, I know it's been an up, up and down, probably from your end, but from where we sit, it's been quite a delight. So, um, thank you for the generosity of your practice. You know, it's an act of generosity to yourselves. It's an act of generosity to the world that you practice. Because as you can see, you become transformed. You transform your heart, your mind, in small and large ways. And that can be nothing but a really genuine contribution to well-being and happiness and compassion and clarity. You know, what does this world need? It needs more awareness, needs more kindness, needs more presence, needs more respect, needs more attentiveness, needs people who care, who love deeply, you know, and so this is what we've been developing. So thank you for that. And the world thanks you and the world cheers you on even if they think you're kind of weird for navel-gazing for a week and not talking. If only they knew, really, if only they really knew what was going on. So, so I'm going to say some things about leaving the retreat, and we'll say more tomorrow. Um, and then I also want to give some context, a slightly larger context uh, of the Eightfold Path. So how he spoke to the Four Noble Truths the other night, and I want to speak to the last of those truths, the Eightfold Path, because it's really a, a way to uh, hold the, the bigger picture of our lives and the bigger picture of practice. So from one perspective, what we're doing here and, and the lifestyle here is very different. It's slow, it's methodical, it's a training. The conditions are very, very supportive. Uh, there's a common interest, there's an interest, there's a common intention with what we're doing. And the world that we normally live in, uh, which is you know, dominated by qualities that uh, aren't so considered wholesome, greed, consumerism, competition, uh, aversion. You know, we do a lot of acting out. There's a lot of acting out in the world, a lot of suffering, a lot of ignorance. And awakening and mindfulness and living with presence, you know, it's not, you know, headlines for CNN, you know, or Fox News. Not that I've been watching anyway. Um, And so there can be a little bit of a a jarring sometimes when we enter, when we leave this rather rarefied, sanctified place into uh, the hustle and bustle of the world. Somebody mentioned uh, 
they, they said that the experience of being in this hall was the experience of the holy, which is a Catholic expression. And uh, I was very touched by that because what we do here is very holy, very sacred, very profound, mysterious. And so um, it can, as I said, be a little bit of a, a jar or a transition, how to, how to navigate from the stillness and the silence and the depths of our lives here out into the world. I brought along a couple of ads just to remind you, in case you th- thought that the, the, the world had suddenly got enlightened. This is um, Jamba Juice. This is what an enlightened smoothie looks like. Just, you know, so in case you're, you know, it's going to be hot tomorrow, so, you know, maybe the first thing you can do is get an enlightened smoothie so you can kind of stay in the groove. And then the day after that is July 4th, and you could get an enlightened beer. Um, this is Corona Light. So there's, there's a regular Corona, which is extra, and then there's Corona Light, which is enlightened beer. So you could carry on your path of awakening on July 4th by, you know. Anyhow, there's no end to delusion in this world. So from another perspective, uh, there's very little difference between what we're doing here and what we do in our lives. It's the same world, the same sights, smells, tastes, touch, hearing, smelling, seeing. The senses are operating and what, what, hap, what, what is, abides at the center of that is awareness, is our presence. We move through the world, as it were, with presence. Or things come to us in awareness. So, and we can always take refuge in that. That no matter how crazy it gets, we get, how confused, how lost, the, we, you've been sowing seeds of intention, of mindfulness, of kindness, remembering, and it takes only a moment to return to your nature, right? And you've done that how many thousands of times this retreat? Spaced out, wandered, got reacted, got reacted, got reactive, got lost, and then you you wake up, so there's some moment of resurfacing of presence. Mindfulness means to remember, self-remember. So to trust in in the practice that you've put in here, to, pra- to trust in your nature. And as the, ex- as the expression goes, when we take care of just this moment, what we're doing here, since the future is a dream anyway, the future takes care of itself. When it arrives, we're learning, we know how to take care of this moment. And this idea of, of, you know, we often get asked, well, how do I translate this? How do I take this? We don't really take anything. It's not like we have a big, we give you a backpack and we throw in some mindfulness and a little metta and a little whatever, karuna and compassion. And no, it's, it's in your being, in your heart, in your mind. And we practice to remember, we practice to wake up. <clears throat> Tolka Ogun, who was a wonderful Buddhist teacher, uh, said, mindfulness is easy. Remembering to be mindful is difficult. 
Yeah, because once we're present, you know, it's, we're present. But it's the it's the spacing out, it's the forgetting, and and the and the more we sow these seeds of intention, the more likely they are to rearise and sprout. This is from Thoreau. What we do best or most imperfectly is what we have most thoroughly learned by the longest practice, and at length it falls from, and at length it falls from us without our notice as a leaf from a tree. What we do best or most imperfectly is what we have most thoroughly learned by the longest practice. For some of you, this may may have been a very long week, (laughs) a long week of practice. So what we do best is when we really, you know, what we practice, and it's just like with training wheels on a bike, we practice until we no longer need the training wheels, until these qualities and this attitude and intention becomes established, becomes our set point, as it were. There can also be a sense of loss, of leaving the retreat, of the the conditions folding, losing this beautiful, loving community we've developed. Um, And so there can be a sense of, uh, you know, wanting to hold on tightly. And uh, and that's natural. Um, But actually, an interesting frame is to imagine giving the gift of what you've learned here and developed here as, as, a, as, a, as part of your practice of generosity. When you, as you go back into, into tomorrow, wherever you go, to home or family or, or whatever, you know, to take this practice as an act of generosity and to offer whatever blessings that have come your way, whatever fruit, whatever warmth, whatever clarity, whatever insight, whatever kindnesses, Rather than thinking we need, oh, I need to kind of keep it tight in the box and hold on to it, maybe it'll last till next Saturday, you know. No, we, we kind of keep it, we keep it flowing. You know, the Buddha said, when he had a, a bunch of awakened disciples, he said, go forth for the welfare of the many, for the happiness of the many. Don't go by the same road. Share the Dharma, which is good in the beginning, the middle, and the end. Take the blessings of this. Share it. Not, evangel- not evangelically, but just to... Um, you know, have an open fist as you share. This is from the poet Naomi Shihab Nye. She says, it's difficult to know what to do with so much happiness. With sadness is something to rub against, a wound to heal with lotion and cloth. When the world falls in around you, you have pieces to pick up, something to hold in your hands like ticket stubs or change. But happiness floats. It doesn't need you to hold it down. It doesn't need anything. Happiness lands on the roof of the next house singing and disappears when it wants to. Since there is no place large enough to contain so much happiness, you shrug. You raise your hands and it flows out of you into everything you touch. You are not responsible. You take no credit as the night sky takes no credit for the moon, but continues to hold it and share it and in that way be known. So let the happiness flow out of you in whichever way it flows out of you. And we also talk about this point in the retreat being the halfway point. That consider the next week to be the second half of your retreat. So how you 
move, how you work, how you're in relationship, bring as much quality of attention to that. Because ultimately the point of this practice is how we live, how we wake up in our lives, in ourselves, in the world. Not to become professional retreat meditators and live on the cushion, you know, nice as that may be. The point is to, is to wake up in everything that we do in our lives. There's a lovely metaphor in the Zen tradition of the, the Zen ox herding pictures. The metaphor is the seeker uh, goes seeking the ox goes into the forest, confused, lost, follows the trail, gets a scent, finally finds the ox, follows it, eventually tames it. They come into a beautiful, profound relationship. Uh, This wild ox becomes tame and uh, obedient in a certain way. And then rather than hanging out in blissful nirvana in the woods with the ox, the, the, the seeker brings the the ox back into the marketplace, into, into the hustle and bustle of life. Yeah, and eventually becomes one with that. So, um, so the same for us. This is from Achan Chah. He says, sitting for hours on end is not necessary. Some people think that the longer you can sit, the wiser you must be. I have seen chickens sitting on their nests for days on end. Wisdom comes from being mindful in all postures. Your practice should begin as soon as you wake up in the morning and continue till you fall asleep. Don't, com- don't be concerned how long you can sit. What is important is only you keep watchful, whether you're working or sitting or going to the bathroom. So to notice what your intention is as you, uh, as you begin to make plans to go home and you think about that process. You know, sometimes we get really clear about what's important, what's real, what's true, what's necessary. And uh, an intention that we can take can really guide us when we, when we hit the difficult places just like we hit the difficult places in our lives. Just like the first few days for many of you weren't so easy here, you know, that'll be the same with our lives. Our lives are full of ups and downs. And one thing I would like to encourage you to do or to have is to be realistic about your intention. You know, sometimes we get really kind of, you know, gun ho about uh, about you know, what's possible, you know, I'm going to sit five hours a day and I'm going to do a retreat every month and I'm going to, you know, whatever it is, you know, read all the texts or, um, and then by Wednesday we, we, we're too busy to meditate, you know, or we can't be bothered or it's too difficult or... So to be realistic about what's possible. Um, Because there's nothing worse than giving yourself something and then you f- and setting yourself up to fail, right? So when you think about your daily practice or something, make it realistic, make it durable, make it enjoyable, make it something that, in- that you're inspired to do. So what happens when we leave the retreat? One of the first things that we practice is letting go. Letting go of, 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 of the culture that I mentioned of the, uh, 
the stillness and the silence, the states. And of course, one of the essence, one of the essences of this practice is letting go. Yeah? To understand, as Anna was speaking to, of the changing nature of things. We can't hold on to anything, no matter how beautiful. No matter. How, think about the most delicious, exquisite state meditation experience you had on this retreat. Where is it if it's not here right now? It's gone. It's gone. So we let go. We let go. If we don't let go, we're trying to. We you know we're. we're, we're constricting reality. And, and, and when we do that, we're not open to the next thing, the next blessing that might be arising. Like falling in love with the baby swallows, trying to get room in the nest, you know, they're just about to take flight. I mean, they might even be gone tomorrow. We have to let them go, you know, just like parents let their children go when they leave the nest. This is from Mary Oliver, a poem called In Blackwater Woods. She says, Every year, everything I have learned in, a, in my lifetime leads back to this. And I can't read because I haven't got my glasses on. It's a suspensing moment. Leads to this. It leads to the fires in the black river of loss whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. Easier said than done, right? You've noticed Velcro mind, you know, we get sticky to things, especially the things that we like. You may have noticed that when you were doing the, the talking exercise, yeah, and, and what came back, you know, you've sort of been emptying out in a way on retreat, where the sense of self gets a little more porous, a little more dissolved, and then we start talking and hmm, there comes me and my story and my history and my views and my preferences and my likes and And again, to, to, to see, just to be, to be curious, how do I meet that? Oh no, I've lost it. I was so open and spacious and then all that stuff came back and oh no. So another thing that I notice a lot when I'm about to leave a retreat is a certain excitement about all the things I've been deprived of, yeah, that I've been kind of waiting for for days in my my favorite cup of tea, or my cappuccino, or my, you know, chocolate croissant, or pizza, or or we got pizza, so we had that one's done. Um, You know, sex, or movies, or whatever it is that, you know, we felt deprived of. And to to see that, see that movement, the strength of that, yeah? And the belief, the mind runs a belief, oh, it's going to be really amazing. I'm going to be so mindful when I drink that cup of coffee. I can be so mindful when I, you know, get on my surfboard or, you know, do what is do whatever it is we think we're gonna get that high. And then, you know, it may be amazing. Or it may be just another sense experience. You know, a friend of ours, a teaching colleague, she was on a retreat 
uh, a long retreat, and she happened to, uh, on a board evening one day, uh, she went into the kitchen, looked at the schedule for the for the week's food, and she noticed it was pizza on Friday. And this is a long retreat, and you know, pizza's a big deal, as you know, you can see big sensual happening. And so all week, she, all she could think about was what kind of pizza? Was it going to be thin crust or thick crust? Was it going to be like Italian or like, you know, what kind of dressing and sauce and cheese? And, you know, and so she, you know, Friday comes along and she's like really keen to get the front of the line, but not too keen to be first because that would look greedy. So she waited back a little. She was like second or third in line. And then uh, she got, you know, several helpings of pizza and sat down and was all, you know, thoroughly excited. And she took a bite and, and the thought came, oh, it's pizza. <laughs> it's just pizza. It was nice pizza, but it's just pizza. <laughs> like, how good can pizza be? <laughs> so... One of my favorite Far Side, not Far Side, uh, uh, comic cartoons from uh, The New Yorker. Two goldfish swimming in the sea, in the ocean, or wherever goldfish swim. I've never seen them in the wild, but somewhere <laughs> wild. <laughs> I think they started in the wild, didn't they? <laughs> Anyhow. I, they're freshwater, so they probably live in streams and lakes. I'm working it out as I'm talking. Um, anyhow, uh, so the little caption underneath the two goldfish are talking, and one says to the other, so what are you hoping for? What do you dream about? And the other one says, you know, I want the whole deal. I want the glass bowl. I want the little color gravel and the castle and the plastic plant. So we can, you know... We have this whole beautiful, abundant universe, but I want a Mars bar, and it's got to be a Mars bar, a frozen Mars bar, ice cream. And then we look at what that does to this, you know, talk about the, ab- the opposite of big mind, <laughs> Mars bar mind. I grew up on Mars bars, so that's, you know, it was an old fixation of mine. Frozen. They're quite good. <clears throat> But not as good as you think they're going to be. <laughs> Anyhow, so um, moving right along, um, what I want to talk a little more about is the Eightfold Path uh, to give, it, say, a broader context. So um, uh, the Buddha talked about the Eightfold Path in many different ways, many different teachings, particularly in the context of the Four Noble Truths as the path leading to the realization of the cessation of suffering. And in the context of this retreat, we've mostly been practicing the latter part of the Eightfold Path, um, uh, which is considered as, so that we, the, the Eightfold Path is, is often divided into three parts, uh, the ethical foundation part, the meditative uh, practice, and the, the wisdom fruition part. And um, so in this retreat, we've been developing more the meditative qualities, uh, mindfulness, concentration, and effort, wise effort, as Anna spoke about the other night. Of course, these qualities we develop and we utilize in everything that we do, but on the retreat, we really give these a lot of attention, balancing these factors, as you've been doing in your meditation, balancing effort. Balancing concentration and mindfulness. 
as we develop and deepen those qualities, we, 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 we gather the forces of the mind so we have a depth of presence, a depth of attention, that then we can bring uh, greater clarity to our experience, to our life. And so the, the, um, the culmination, as it were, I don't really like to use that word, it's a little too narrow, but the fruition or the, um, uh, one of the benefits that arises out of that depth of presence is that we see clearly and we, we have a deeper understanding and, and, and access to more insight, as Anna spoke to. That, that clarity of presence that depth of seeing, the stillness of the mind, allows a more penetrating perception of reality, more penetrating understanding of what's true in ourselves, in our experience, in the laws that govern the universe, like the laws of change, the unsatisfactory nature of experience because of its transience, the selfless, empty, insubstantial nature of things because it's conditioned and the, condi- and the conditions are always coming and going. So we see that in ourselves. We see the, the empty nature of the selfing process, that, that we're not as solid and as substantial and as fixed and as real as we like to think the construct is that we make about ourselves. So what I like about the Eightfold Path is it constantly spirals and weaves into each other. So we, we develop this depth of uh, samadhi, of meditative presence, which... Uh, leads to deeper understanding, a wise view, the first of the Eightfold Path. And we have a deeper understanding of the Four Noble Truths, of how we suffer, how we create suffering, the causes of suffering, how we can free ourselves from that suffering as we've been looking at all week. How how we see the nature of causality, how things affect each other, a thought arises. It conditions a feeling, it conditions an emotion, it conditions a sensation. We have knee pain, it conditions a story. We have a belief and it conditions a f- an emotion. So out of wise understanding, another aspect of wise understanding is we see, we see through this illusion of, of being separate. It's the illusion of thinking that we're independent. We see more deeply our interconnectedness, how we affect each other, how everything is affecting everything else. When someone sneezes or cries or snores, it affects the field in here. Out of the understanding of our interconnectedness, and I hope that you have a deeper sense of that. Sometimes we have a deeper sense of connection in silence than we do when we're yakking all day. Yeah? I often feel on retreat, I know people much more deeply in the silence than I do if I've been you know, talking to them for a week or a year or 10 years. You know, we just get a sense of their essence. And we feel the, the connectivity or the, the shared humanness that's between us out of that understanding of interconnection and of, of the, the, uh, the, um, the ways that everything that we do has consequences, it informs the next part of the, the Eightfold Path, which is 
mostly one I want to talk about this evening, which is the ethical foundation of uh, the Eightfold Path. (coughs) Wise action, wise speech, and wise livelihood. There's a lovely um, story from the, about the poet Hafez, who um, has uh, a student come to him with these great mystical experiences of God, and he wants, as students do, confirmation from the teacher that they're that they're valid, they're real. And Hafez says, um, "Well, that's great about your experiences, uh, but tell me how many goats do you have?" And the man says somewhat indignantly, I'm telling you about my visions of God, and you want to, I'm, you're asking me about my goats? And he said, yeah, how many goats do you have? He, he knew he was a farm. He said, well, I have you know, 42. And, and then Hafez proceeds to ask him you know, about his children, and does he take care of his uh, parents, and does he feed the birds in winter, and how is he to his animals? And so the man answers all these questions, and then somewhat bemused still, and Hafez says, you ask me if your visions of God are true, and they are if they make you more kind and more caring to every person and every creature that you meet. The point being, our practice has to, the fruition of our practice is when the rubber meets the road, when we move in our lives, in our relationships, in our speech, in our actions, in our choices. So in the retreat, we're more in the mode of Uh, observation, watching, knowing, sensing, feeling, allowing, letting be, and there's very little to do. A bell goes and you show up somewhere. Another bell goes, you show up or you stop doing something. You have to choose, you have to think too much, hopefully, and you just show up. Our lives are very different. They require a lot more active engagement, and often people ask, this is all very great to to, to watch and to know and to observe, but what about when I have you know real difficult ethical choices to make? You know, about my children's education or their or their welfare, or how do I take care of my elderly parents who have Alzheimer's, or what do I do with my livelihood that really feels like it's making me burn out, or um, you know all the different complex choices we have to make. How do you respond to the ecological crisis? What's my responsibility uh, in the way that I'm choosing to live my life? Yeah? So it's more than just observing. We take the powers of our knowing and our observation and our clarity and that those inform the way that we move in the world. So it matters what we do, what we say, what we eat, what we buy, what we decide, how we work. So as the Dalai Lama said, my religion is kindness. Right? Not just sitting on a cushion dwelling in the, in, in, in the sacred, but it's actually the movement of the heart. So for the Buddha, sila, or ethics, was the, was the foundation, wise action was the foundation for uh, the contemplative life. He would teach to lay people ethics and generosity to make sure that foundation was really solid. Because if, we don't, if we're not living ethically, if we're, if we're harming and acting out in ways to ourselves and others that's causing a lot of pain and suffering, when we come to meditate, our mind is really disturbed, our body is agitated. 
Think about when the, if you reflect on times where you feel remorse or regret or shame, it's really hard to stay present and steady with it. There's a lot of agitation, fear, regret, shame. The Buddha said how we act in the world, how we are in the world is what determines our nobility. Not because of our birth, not because of our race, but how we act in the world. So the five ethical agreements that we took at the beginning of the retreat really form the foundation of the Buddha's teaching on wise action. So I want to say a little more about those because they're really great reference points and, uh, uh, and anchors as we move through life which is generally pretty complex. So the first is to practice non-harming. Not taking the life of anything. I don't imagine you're going to go out and kill somebody. But the, the, the principle is non-harming, non-violence. How is it to live with non-violence in the world? What happens if your house, when you get home, is infested with cockroaches? How does the, the principle of non-harming apply? You know, or you have termites. Or whatever else could be eating your house. <laughs> I'm sure lots of other things. <laughs> um, I remember being at IMS, the, the sister center of Spirit Rock on the East Coast, and it was a time when, there, it was a long time ago, and they had lots of cockroaches at night. They'd come out, and they were the most loved cockroaches. Everyone was sending them matter, and it was mindfully walking around them. And, but there were cockroaches, and there was a health problem, and they got hassle from the, the health you know, for folks, the, um, the county, whatever. Um, and they tried getting psychics in. They tried doing all kinds of you know, spiritual levitation and bread trails out to the forest and... You know, and at some point there was either you know get rid of the cockroaches or shut down. You know, so sometimes you make an ethical choice, and it's and it's hard. Sometimes non-harming means um, being kind to ourselves. Where, where do we mostly experience harm in our lives? Is usually from ourselves, from our own violence, from our own harshness, from our own critic, from our own judgments, from our own pushing, striving, berating, shaming. Uh, etc. Yeah. So to 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 include that in in your practice of non-harming, to to look at the way you talk to yourself, like even in meditation. Oh God, you're thinking again. Terrible. You're so unmindful. You're so uncompassionate. Oh, judging. Ah, judging. Thank you. Thank you. May you be happy. Go back to your breath. Oh, you're so lazy. Thank you. May you be happy. May I be happy. Really good to replace every judgment with a meta statement. This is, I like to read this cartoon just to make fun of the critic. This is a cartoon from Rhymes with Orange called Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. This is something we do a lot on retreat. Choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. This person's imagining a winner. Imagine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. Relive, this is a popular meditation pastime, relive embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago. <laughs> Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint, especially those who share your last name. <laughs> Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. It's a, a picture of a woman getting a compliment. Hey, you look great. She's thinking, don't patronize me. 
And lastly, resign yourself to believing that from now on this is how you'll always feel. So, to be mindful of the critic, positive expressions of non-harming. For some people it's choosing to be vegetarian, for choosing to be vegan, choosing not to wear leather as, as, a, as a kindness to animals. For some of the monks in Thailand, it's ordaining the old-growth trees because there's, there's so little old-growth forest left in Thailand. One of the ways they protected the trees was to, was to ordain them and wrap robes around them so people wouldn't cut them down. For some people, it's getting really clear about your investments, investing ethically to see where your money's going. Is your money supporting industries that cause harm to the planet, to people? To know where the stuff you buy comes from, whether it's a carpet or clothes, you know, all these things make a difference. For some people, it's choosing to f- stop flying, to stop driving. I know people who've given up driving, given up their cars, and they just bike or take public transport as a way of non-harming the planet. Very simple, practical ways to do that. The second guideline is to uh, refrain from taking that which hasn't been freely given. And to notice here where we have no locks on the doors and where we've created this culture, what a beautiful culture it is where there's something relaxes. There's something we can, we know, we can sleep you know, relatively safely in our beds. There's a certain uh, a relaxation of the nervous system, a certain trust. It's a beautiful thing. What would it be in this world if everybody followed this one simple precept? Of not stealing, not taking anything not taking someone's time that wasn't offered, not taking someone's energy, not taking someone's fame or things that was duly accorded to them, Um, not taking resources that haven't been freely offered to us, to to think about the the planet and whether the resources that we consume have been freely offered, and to to be mindful of that. I think it's really imperative as as a conscious community that we wake up to our responsibility in the planet. I have a friend who lives in New York who um, for a year decided to have no waste products from his house. And he lives in downtown New York. He developed this thing called No Impact Man. It's a very interesting phenomena. Um, and it radically changed his life. And it woke him up to so many things about how we just throw away resources that perhaps weren't so freely given because we take some resources here and it means somebody else over here has less. So the opposite of that, of the, 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 there's always a positive side to these guidelines. The positive side of not taking is generosity. Beautiful practice. The Buddha spoke about it many times. We spoke about it earlier today. The practice of generosity is the opposite of grasping. It's the opposite of holding on. It's the opposite of attachment. It allows the heart to connect. When we, when we practice generosity, we feel good in the doing of it, the thinking about it, the reflecting about it. Beautiful practice to take into the world, into our lives. This is a poem from Naomi, another poem from Naomi Shihab Nye, Palestinian poet, called Red Brocade. She says, the Arabs used to say, when a stranger appears, appears at your door, feed him for three days before asking who he is where he's come from and where he's headed. That way he'll have enough strength to answer. Or by then you'll be such good friends you don't even care. Let's go back to that. Rice, pine nuts. Here, take the red brocade pillow. My child will serve water to your horse. No, I wasn't busy when you came. I wasn't preparing to be busy. 
That's the armor everyone puts on to pretend they had a purpose in the world. I refuse to be claimed. Your plate is waiting. We will snip fresh mint into your tea. So the practice of generosity. The third, the third precept is wise sexuality, being non-harming with our sexuality. So after tomorrow we are freeing you from the, uh, the precept of celibacy. Um, so um, uh, you can enjoy that if you so choose. Um, but the point of this precept is to be conscious of this very powerful energy. The sexuality can be both a, a delicious, beautiful path of intimacy, of awakening in its own way, connection, love, and it can be a, a, a vehicle for tremendous harm and suffering and pain. Hands up who hasn't suffered from either some sexual pain, harm, or been reckless sexually. Yeah, I won't ask you to put your hands up, but anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> so you know we need to work with all of these all these powerful forces in our in our in our body, especially sexuality, because of the pain that it causes. A friend of mine, when he used to teach teen classes, teen meditation classes, he would say to get their attention, say, "If you really learn how to practice mindfulness, it will improve your sex life." And suddenly they all got really attentive. <laughs> to look at our identity around sexuality. Look at the sense of self around our sexuality. And to, can we practice contentment as the, as the, as the positive side of this, this, this restraint precept? Can we practice contentment in whatever, in whatever arena we are, whether we're single or in relationship or celibate? Can we be content in that? And lastly, to refrain from intoxicants, from drugs and alcohol that cause heedlessness. And the point is that cause heedlessness. So and we all know the damage that can be done from uh, alcohol and drugs when they're abused. And the unconsciousness, the pain, the violence. I grew up in England where there was a tremendous amount of violence came out of alcoholism, tremendous amount of violence um, and lives wasted, uh, same with the drug culture. So again, to, to be mindful, uh, and for some people that means complete giving up of those things. For some people there's a middle way and it's they, they can enjoy those things but without, to, to the, without getting to the point of becoming mindless. So each one of us will decide that for ourselves. It also means not intoxif- intoxifying our body and our hearts and our minds with the environment we put ourselves in, or the junk food, or junk TV, or there's many, way- there's many, many intoxicants in this world. To be mindful of that, to be you know, respect the body like a temple, or as the Buddha said, hang out with the wise. If there's no wise people to hang out with, be alone. You know, because the effect, you know, we we so affect each other so deeply that we want to be be, be discerning about w- w- the environments that we put ourselves in. Kala Rinpoche uh, was a wonderful Tibetan teacher. He said, you know, at the end of the day, you have, should have a pile of stones, uh, one for the skillful actions and one for the sk- unskillful actions. Hopefully, the former pile is larger than the, the latter pile. So there's wise action, there's wise speech. We could take a whole week on this subject. 
speech is also one of those places that's a beautiful medium for connection, for expression, for creativity, for play, for fun, but also tremendous uh, arena for hurt, for miscommunication, for many different ways that we can have been hurt and can hurt by being unconscious about our conversation. This is from the Buddha. He says, we are what we think, all that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you as your shadow unshakable. How can a troubled mind understand the way? And your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. So speak or act with a pure mind. This is an example of uh, not-so-wise speech. This is from the comic strip Bizarro. A man's coming home from a day at work and there's a note pinned to the door. And it says, Dear Kirby, after all these years of meditation and in spite of your endless ridicule, I have finally reached universal consciousness. I have transcended to a higher plane. I am everywhere and nowhere, non-existent and eternal, all-seeing and all-knowing. You, on the other hand, can go suck an egg. So, so to be mindful, it's a great practice when we, when we uh, break silence tomorrow morning and start speaking here and to our loved ones on the phone or when we get home or on the bus or in the cafe. You know, there'll be a lot more awareness of your conversation, hopefully, and to see that it's, it's a minefield. And uh, it's the place that we probably most easily lose presence to stay grounded in the body is a great support. And the Buddha gave some very practical advice. He said, speak what's truthful. That's obvious. Speak what's truthful and useful. Sometimes we know a lot of truthful things about somebody. Not so useful to tell them. You may have had a lot of insights about your nearest and dearest. And you can't wait to tell them about all your insights you had about them. <laughs> and how they could be better and different. And you know all of that. Maybe not so useful. He also said, ref- when, you're th- when you're about to engage in a conversation, reflect on whether it's the right person to be having this conversation with, the right place, the right time, and the right subject. So maybe some conversations you have with your six-year-old are not appropriate that you would have with a 20-year-old. Or the place that you, you, know, the place that you do, the time You know, to not have a really uh, difficult conversation with your spouse when you're both tired and it's one o'clock in the morning. That is probably the wrong time, etc. You get the idea. And to be mindful about who you, who and when you share your experience of the retreat with. You know, there's there's a power in words, and we can also dilute the power of an experience if we over-talk it, which we like to do sometimes. We can't wait to tell somebody about the rising and falling of our breath and how it was <laughs> merging with everybody's in the room and we could feel the deer breathing and it was all one and, and the bus driver's looking at us going, like, <laughs> we should take that person back to where they came from. <laughs> so, um, right time, right place, right person. Um, 
you know, when someone says at work, how was your retreat? And they already think you're cuckoo for going on the retreat, so you don't need to tell them about the rising and passing of everything. And they just want to know you were happy, you had a great time, and how are you? So that's really a great response. <laughs> I'm fine, thank you, it was great. And they, they sub breathe a sigh of relief of their back. They look, they look kind of sane, okay, they haven't lost it. Okay, we can still, can still employ them. And... Um, you know, and obviously with your nearest and dearest or people who, who understand about practice who are generally interested, of course, you can explore and go into that. It's a delightful thing to share. And sometimes an experience isn't, doesn't come to fruition until we actually articulate it. So there's some real, real value to that. And being watchful of um, uh, trying to convert people now, you know, your, everybody you love to, to Buddhists or to meditators or to mindfulness, you know, become the... You know, learn from my mistakes. When I was when I was um, twenty and I got into Buddhism, I became a complete obnoxious Buddhist evangelist, especially to my family. And um, you know, I could just I can imagine them rolling their eyes. Here comes Mark telling about the virtues of enlightenment, and I had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> but I was very happy to lecture them about all the things they were doing wrong, and you know. So there's a line that I heard from somebody that says. My family loves me when I'm a Buddha and hates me when I'm a Buddhist. I think that was a direct quote from <laughs> people I knew. So, um, and the same thing with children. Your children will be fascinated, probably, about what you did and fascinated to see you sitting quietly you know, on the couch or on a cushion or in the garden. Um, let them learn from your example. You know, let them watch, let them get curious. You know, they'll, they'll ask you soon enough. Or if they're teens, they'll just think it's really embarrassing. Oh my God, it's more embarrassing. And that's okay, that's, you know, that's what teens do. So lastly, I want to say a few words about wise livelihood, since um, work is such a big part of our lives, whether it's paid livelihood or otherwise. And it's also the, the single largest source of suffering uh, in, in many surveys that I've read, um, it's the place that people feel most stress, most anxiety, most uh, distress, um, and misery. Um, this is from Bertrand Russell. One of the symptoms of an approaching nervous breakdown is the belief that one's work is terribly important. <laughs> so, um, and of course we want, we want to find a way to weave mindfulness and presence and all of these qualities into our lives and, of course, into our work. Which may seem a daunting task to some of you and a natural task to others. You know? So, as I said, the practice is within you, mindfulness is within you. And it's amazing, it's amazing. I've worked with many, many people over the years integrating mindfulness and meta practices into their work life and it's transformed their work life from from nervous breakdown to really loving what they do um i was at a conference recently uh it's called wisdom 2.0 it was a it was a mingling of the tech world of google and facebook and twitter and zengi and all those folks down there and mindfulness teachers john kabat-zinn was there and jack cornfield and a bunch of others and it was a really interesting dialogue. I mean, one of the things that I 
a couple of things that I took away from that. One was something John Kabat-Zinn said, which he said, because uh, a lot of talk about work-life balance and how in, imbalanced everybody was because they worked so hard at these companies. And he said, there's no such thing as work-life balance. Work is life. Work is part of life. So what's this thing about work-life balance? Make work your life. Not work, not, as in not let it take over your life, but to see. It's just like, rather than taking mindfulness into life, bring life into mindfulness. So at these various companies at Google, they talked a lot about how now they, um, they've been doing mindfulness uh, trainings there for a long time, and many departments have... Um, uh, they have a mindfulness moment before they have meetings. They have an intentional moment uh, in some departments where uh, if the intention isn't being followed at the meeting, anybody has the right to leave the meeting. Um, so, you know, it's possible anywhere, you know, whether it's you work alone and you put mindfulness clocks on your, on your computer or you take a break once an hour and you five minutes and you feel your breath and your feet and your belly... In many, many ways, or every time you walk around the office to the cooler, don't do the slow walking because it'll arrest you, but you, know, you can walk around and just feel your body. You know? uh, walk up and down the stairs instead of taking the elevator and be mindful, use that time to be mindful. Uh, when you get to work, when you drive home from work, these times you can integrate just simply being present, letting, it, letting everything else go. This is a story I want to read from Time magazine. At 4.30, when most of Wall Street is winding down, Walter Zimmerman begins a high-stakes, high-wire act conducted live before a paying audience. About 200 investors, including airlines and other companies, shell out 3000 a month to catch his daily webcast on the volatile energy markets, a performance that can move hundreds of millions of dollars a day. I'm not paid to be wrong, he says, I can tell you that. But as he clicks through dozens of screens and graphics on three computers, he's the picture of focus calm. Zimmerman, 54, watched most of his peers in energy futures burn out long ago. He attributes his brain's enduring sharpness not to, not to an intravenous espresso drip, but to 40 minutes of meditation each morning. The practice, he says, helps him maintain the clarity he needs for quick, insightful analysis, even approaching happy hour. Meditation, he says, is my secret weapon. So to bring some awareness to reflection about your work, you know, and to look at what's unlo- unwise livelihood. The Buddha had all kinds of criteria for what was unwise livelihood. You know, obviously things that caused harm, military, uh, butchering, prostitution. Um, uh, but there's also, uh, you could be working in a wonderful organization, but it's unwise livelihood for you because the hours are too much, there's too much stress. Uh, so to really reflect on this, because it's such a big part of our lives, is, is our work in harmony with our values? Does, the, can, does my work support my practice? Or does it really feel like it completely depletes and fries me at the end of the week? Bernie Glasman, who is a Zen teacher and uh, created really wonderful uh, right livelihood businesses in New York, particularly for uh, people who had been homeless and in prison. He said the, the, the greatest cause of business failure 
is lack of attention, which really makes sense. So to look at the habits in your work, do you overwork, do you take on too much projects, do you work too long hours? I have a friend of mine who runs a law firm and he forces his, his, his staff to go home at five o'clock, which is unheard of for a law firm. You know, he wants them to have balance in their lives. To look at the, your identity around your work, to see how much identification you have with what you do. To see whether that causes you to work in a healthy way or not. And if you hate your job, as Oscar Wilde says, the best way to appreciate your job is to imagine yourself without one. <laughs> Which many people are now in that position, sadly, because of the mess of our financial system. So, and so this is sort of a, an overview, a little bit of um, uh, the, the, you could say, the ethical part of the Eightfold Path looking at wise action, looking at our speech, looking at our livelihood, as we bring more awareness to that part of our lives, it supports, as I mentioned earlier, uh, a greater harmony, and it becomes more conducive, more aligned for our practice, for our meditation practice. Helps deepen our meditation practice, which helps deepen our clarity, which leads to more wisdom, and so the, the path is a constant spiraling and deepening. And we work on all these things at the same time. It's not linear in that way. So last couple of things I want to say, um, uh, just as we said in the beginning, to be patient with yourselves as you leave. As you may have seen, practice and growth and insight happens pretty slowly. So to be patient with yourself, with your practice, with your progress, to have realistic expectations. I'll re- l- close with this um, story that I, uh, I like, that it's where the woman is really expressing how to be patient and kind with ourselves in the midst of just the mess of life. In this case, it's parenting, but it could be any other situation. A man observed a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in her basket. As they passed the cookie section, the little girl asked for cookies and told her mother no. The little girl immediately began to whine and fuss, and the mother said quietly, Now, Monica, we just have half of the aisles left to go through. Don't be upset, it won't be long. Soon they came to the candy aisle, and the little girl began to shout for candy. And of course, when she was told she couldn't have any, she began to cry. The mother said, there, there, Monica, don't cry. Only two more aisles to go, and then we'll check out. When they got to the checkout stand, the little girl immediately began to clamor for the gum and burst into a terrible tantrum upon discovering there'd be no gum purchased. The mother patiently said, Monica, we'll be through this checkout line in five minutes, and then you can go home and have a nice nap. The man followed them out to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with that little moniker of yours, he began. Whereupon the mother said, What do you mean? My little girl's name's Tammy. I'm Monica. (laughs) Takes a little while to get that. So, to be patient with your little monikers. (laughs) 
Okay, so let's sit for a few moments. I'll leave you with this poem that I wrote about taking the light into the world. Sometimes the lips of the hibiscus burst so bright out of their buds, they only shine for a day before they coil and wither away. Imagine radiating that light so briefly in this dusty and tempered life. Imagine what you would display if all you had was but one day to reveal your glory to the world. So thank you for your practice. Enjoy this last lovely quiet summer evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.